Uh, so the reading this afternoon is from Psalm chapter 80, which is on page 593 of the Church Bibles. Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim. Shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might, come and save us. Restore us, O God, make your face shine on us, that we may be saved. How long, Lord God Almighty, will your anger smoulder against the prayers of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us an object of derision to our neighbours, and our enemies mock us. Restore us, God Almighty, make your face shine on us, that we may be saved. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea, its shoots as far as the river. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it, and insects from the fields feed on it. Return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down, it is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand the Son of Man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us, and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine on us, that we may be saved. Thank you, Johnny. Please keep your Bibles open with me. That's Sam Ely. My name is Glenn Burns. I want to welcome all of you here, especially if you're a visitor here this afternoon. It's great to see you. But before we turn to God's word, as we look and see what Psalm 80 has to say, let us pray um, to our God and ask him for help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. Lord, we ask that you speak to us now. Help us to understand your word clearly. And may it point us to Jesus through the power of your spirit. Amen. Now, something I've always been meaning to do since I've um, moved to London is go and visit the Painted Hall in Greenwich. I don't know if you've seen it, but it is London's version of the Sistine Chapel. You're going to have to use your imagination here with me, but as soon as you enter through the double doors of the Painted Hall, look up and you see this grandeur painting stretching all the way across the hall heading down the wall through the double doors right in front of you, where there's another painting in front of you. Now, these paintings depict a celebration of the United Kingdom becoming the most dominant power in Europe and the ascension of the Protestant religion to the throne through William III and George I. Now, through the king, the state religion of the Church of England became Protestantism. Now, some of us might call this today evangelicalism. But fast forward to today. Where are we now? 
Now, before we begin, I don't want this to dominate the theme of the passage. I don't want the passage to be overtaken by this. But I'm using this as an example of somewhere we can relive our history in a vivid and imaginative way. Now, the Painted Hall isn't the same as going to a museum where we see artifacts and stories. The Painted Hall gives us an artistic interpretation of how the UK ascended to where it is today through its fanciful interpretation. Some of this is slightly similar to Psalm 80 as well. Now, if you were to read Psalm 80 for the first time, you might be slightly confused as to what is going on. Your brain might feel like one of those detective boards you see in TV dramas or in movies where there's red lines drawn everywhere and you're trying to work out who is it talking about. But in its very simplest form, Psalm 80 is a plea for restoration. But why this plea? It's because the psalmist is reliving the past glories of God's people through history in poetic language and crying out for Israel to return to its former state of power. Israel has been ravaged. And the psalmist longs for God to save them and bring them to a place of restoration and revival. And as we look at this prayer signed by God's people, we will see how the desperate request for God's help in divine restoration will cause us to turn our eyes to Jesus and see how God's plan of restoration in the gospel is far bigger than just the history of Israel. It's bigger than the history of the United Kingdom. But in fact, the history of Israel and God's people is actually the story of Jesus and how as his people we can have confidence and hope in no longer dwelling on the past, but dwelling on the bigger picture of Jesus and our hope in this psalm as it is fulfilled in him and his faithfulness. So before we see how this psalm points us to Jesus, as we've been doing all summer, I want us to see four things in this psalm. Firstly, we'll see a desperate appeal. We'll see a state of despair. We will see a destroyed vine. And then finally, we will see a call for divine restoration. So firstly, let's think about a desperate appeal. And we see this in verses 1 to 3. Look at verse 1 with me here. The psalmist says this, Hear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Manasseh, awaken your might, come and save us. And the writer here is using a term that was given by God, to God by Jacob to his son Joseph in Genesis 49 here in verse 1. You see, the God who led his people like a flock of sheep Surely he would look after them. But why should the people have confidence in God? We'll look at his almighty power in verse 1. As he sits enthroned between the cherubim, he is full of terrifying power. Now if you want someone on your side, you want someone who is powerful against his enemies and yet tender with his allies and friends. You see, this is much more than just having Steph Curry in your basketball team. 
This is much more than having Lionel Messi in your football team or Erling Haaland in your fantasy football league. This is so much more than just calling the cavalry. This is reaching out to both the most powerful being in the universe, but also the one who calls himself the shepherd of his people. You see, it's this almighty God that the people are desperate to reach out to as there is a cry and plea for salvation. Save us, Lord. Save us. And what's the summation of this appeal? Well, look at verse 3. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. You see, it's a desperate appeal that the people seek to regain everything they've lost as they look to, for God's favour to turn back to them once again. That their fortunes would change. And they know the blessing that was given to them by God, their shepherd, who was once pleased with them. You see, desperation comes when we long for change. When we long for a better tomorrow. When we strive for hope as we recognize the dire needs of our circumstances and realize that we cannot continue living in this manner anymore. You become desperate when your bills cannot be paid. You become desperate when you find out that a loved one is in intensive care fighting for their life. You become desperate when you get that diagnosis that you fear. You see, we all face moments of desperation. And we, we don't know what to do. We don't know where to turn. And although we can rejoice in the good times and be thankful for them, it is actually the hard times where we face desperation that we realize how broken we are and how much we actually need help. C.S. Lewis once said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see, desperate people should turn to God in desperate appeal for help. But how far should we let ourselves wallow before we hit that desperate state? Well, let's continue looking at the psalm and see how bad the people's state of despair have become in verses 4 to 7. And when we look at the people's desperate appeal in verses 1 to 3, we can see why their desperation is justified in verses 4 to 7. Verse 5, their food has been their tears. They have become an object of derision and mockery to their neighbours as well as their enemies. You see, they're in a state of despair and the cause of it is sin and suffering. But who's behind the cause of this sin and suffering? Well, it seems like in verses 4 to 7, there is a breakdown of relationship between God and his people that's left them in this state of despair. Look at verse 4. God's anger is smouldering against his people. The people are crying out in response, How long, Lord God Almighty? How long will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? But why would God be angry with his people? 
My suggestion is that God doesn't hear the prayers of a sinful nation that turned their back on him to begin with. And now in desperation they crawl back hoping that he will hear their voice. And so the question we all have is this. Why? Why would such a thing happen? Well, such a question is asked again in verse 12. As we look at the verse part, or the next part in verses 8 to 15, and we see a destroyed vine. And what the psalmist does here is that he looks back on Israel's history. Look at verses 8 to 11 with me. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea, its shoots as far as the river. You see, this goes back to the Exodus and Joshua when God saved his people from the slavery and the oppression of Egypt. And he brought them into the promised land where the pagan nations were driven out. And as Israel was planted in that land, they flourished and their border stretched from the Euphrates River to as far as the Mediterranean Sea. But just look at the language used by the psalmist again in verses 7 to 11. Like a potted plant, the vine was taken out of the soil of Egypt and planted in Canaan. And the land that was cleared especially for it. Now as that land was cleared and as the, the vine was planted, it takes root and it grows in nurturing and care. The vine flourished. The vine stretched across the land as it covered mountains and trees and stretches across borders. And the people could have easily been mistaken for assuming that there was nothing wrong. And how often do we do this ourselves? We think everything is okay. Life is rosy. Nothing's wrong. But nothing shakes us out of that complacency than disaster falling upon our laps. Our house gets burgled. Our car gets broken into. Our marriage breaks down. And it's when those things happen, we are reminded of the fallen brokenness of the world that we live in. It's far from perfect. It's nothing like paradise. The world needs restoration. We need restoration. The people of Israel needed a strong, hard wake-up call for themselves to realize that everything was not A-OK. And they received that in verses 12 to 16. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick up its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it and insects from the field feed upon it. Return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root that your right hand has planted, the sun that you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down. It is burnt with fire. And at your rebuke, your people perish. Let me paraphrase the C.S. Lewis quote once again. God uses pain to wake up a deaf world. And for his people, he needed to wake them up even more from sleeping in the darkness of their sin and making them to turn their faces to him once again.
He had to show then the consequences of turning away from him and turning to sin. The vine that was supposed to be a life-giving plant to the nations around it has now become ravaged and destroyed. But within these words of desperation and despair, because of the destruction, comes words of hope. And the connection felt between God and his people. Look at verse 15 with me. Verse 15, the people say, To God, watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. In the past, God's people were known to him as his son. He even says this in Exodus 4, when he says to Pharaoh, You have taken my son. Give him back to me. I am paraphrasing that, by the way. Um, But the point is made there. Israel is God's son. And if the vine is to be saved, it must be renewed and restored through the son that God has raised up for himself. And as we come to the final part of our synopsis in Psalm 80, we begin to see the bigger picture that this psalm paints. For hope then, and also for today, as we see in verses 16 to 19, a call for divine restoration. And the call for righteousness and justice comes in the psalmist acknowledging how serious God takes sin in verse 16. You see, the people aren't perishing because life is unfair, but it's by the Lord's rebuke. But with this rebuke comes a glimmer of hope in verses 17 to 18. Look at it with me. Verse 17 says this, Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand. The son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. And when we look back on verse 15 as well, we see that the vine and the son are closely linked as one and the same. And the son of man in one sense is another way of saying any human being. But in the Old Testament, it specifically refers to the king, the one who is known to sit at the right hand of God and represent God before the people as he also represented the people before God. And with the Lord's hand being on him, he had strength and power. The same power that the people are crying out for in verse 2 as they plead for God to awaken his might. You see, their hope is that strength and power comes in the one who will lead them. The one who God raises up for himself and that the people will turn to in repentance. Just like verse 18 says, God will restore them and they will call on his name. And so the prayer in verse 19, we heard it. Twice, but we didn't actually hear it twice. Look at verse 7 and look at verse 3. Actually, let's start from verse 3 here. If we see verse 3, it says here, Restore us, O God, make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. Verse 7, Restore us, God Almighty, make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. Verse 19, Restore us, Lord God Almighty, make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. 
You see, at the beginning of this psalm, the people asked for God to restore them. In verse 7, he was God Almighty, who was powerful. But in verse 19, he is their Lord God Almighty. He is Yahweh. He is the sovereign Lord of all creation. The people are broken, but they are not completely destroyed. And so they turn to God through the Son of Man, whom God has raised up for himself. So here's the question that we have to ask them. Who is the Son of Man? Who is the Son of Man in God's great restoration plan? Well, we have seen through this psalm how various phrases were used to describe God, to describe God's people, and to describe God's king. And throughout the psalms, as we've seen over the past few weeks, this summer are fulfilled and revealed Christ Jesus. And here in Psalm 80, God responds to this prayer in ways that I think were beyond the people's understanding. But yet still, in anticipation, they looked ahead to see the coming of the king who was to rescue and restore the kingdom of Israel. But God would do something better. God would bring about a greater kingdom through his greater means of divine restoration through his divine son. And this is accomplished through the son of man. And if you were to sit down and read the gospels, you would meet somebody who holds these three titles. Someone who calls himself the good shepherd. Someone who calls himself the vine. And someone who calls himself the son of man 80 times. But does Jesus just call himself these things as throwbacks to what the writer in the Psalms proclaim? Or does his words hold far much or far more weight? Well, back at the start of the series, when we looked at Psalm 2, we were reminded of Jesus' words in Luke 24, 44. When Jesus was walking with his two followers on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, and he taught how everything in the scriptures must be fulfilled in him. And some of you will have heard the titles of Psalm 80 used by Jesus in the Gospels, particularly in John's Gospel, where they are very familiar to many of us. In John chapter 10, Jesus says these two things about himself. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Later in John chapter 15, Jesus calls himself the vine, who will be tended by the gardener, who is the father. And those who do not bear fruit in him will be destroyed. And 12 times in John's gospel, we see that Jesus calls himself the son of man. Particularly in John chapter 3, where Jesus declares that the son of man must be lifted up. And again in John chapter 8, that when he is lifted up, you will know who he is. And it seems very telling then, as Jesus is lifted up at the end of his crucifixion, the title he is given is King. This title was given by Pilate in irony. But as we've seen through the Psalms, this title 
is true. Back in Psalm 2, the king is Jesus, God's son. In Psalm 80, Psalm 80 doesn't only validate this title, but it begins to paint for us a bigger picture that helps us to see the bigger picture and plan of God. You see, in sending his son Jesus, God was not acting out of desperation or despair. But God was acting in faithfulness to his word. Jesus came to die on a cross for the penalty of our sin. And he did this so that we would not be destroyed. The plan of God's salvation. The true power of God at work. Is centered around the cross. It culminates in the divine restoration of God's people. And so the challenge for you is this. If you see who Jesus is, if you see him as the king promised in the Psalms, if you see him as the one who is sent to bring you back to God through the cross, if you believe in his death and resurrection, then you are, John chapter 15 verse 5, you are to remain or abide in Jesus who is the vine. As one of God's people, you are to remain in Christ. Stick closely to him. Believe in who he is. Believe in him, trusting in his word, trusting in his promises that are fulfilled in Jesus and promising in all that Jesus has done for you. Believe that he is the king. He is the son of man. He is the one who represents us before God. And he represents God before us. And believing in him, you become part of the vine who was rescued by him. You know, it can be quite depressing to look at the state of the church at times, can't it? Times we get frustrated, we begin to think pragmatically about how we can recapture those glory days of old. The United Kingdom was once seen as one of the greatest countries in the world, and it's still up there, don't get me wrong. But in the past, through which we were we decorated through it being the state religion of Christianity, it's now enshrouded in controversy. And for some people, it's enshrouded as shame. You see, the UK used to be known as a Christian country. And it's definitely a lot harder for us to identify the UK in that way now. Christendom is fading out. It's no longer the cultural religion of this land. But we are not, put to, or we are not to put our hope in those things. We are not to look around us and put our hope in where our country is today. We can look back on our history the same way that Israel could look back on their history and see the all that God done. And when we look back on the history of Israel, who had the privilege of knowing that they were God's people, knowing that because they abused their privileges, disaster and destruction came upon them, they faced judgment. And we might not face judgment in that same way. But the reason why I say these things is because there is a greater judgment coming. 
And if those living in our country, those living in our city, those living in our neighbourhoods, if they don't know who Jesus is, if they don't know their Lord, the God Almighty, and turn to him, then the past won't save them. Culture won't save them. Only Jesus can save them. And so we have to ask the question, who can restore us? Is it going to be the king of England? No. It can only be the king whom God's right hand rests upon and is revealed in Jesus. You see, the only cure for sin and everything that happens as a consequence of it is the restoration that Jesus alone can bring through the gospel. The gospel confronts us with our greatest problem. That we are sinners before God and deserving of destruction. That destruction is greater than the destruction felt by God's people in Psalm 80. This destruction is hell. But God in his mercy and grace gives us hope through sending his son to come and rescue us from sin. And taking God's just wrath against sin on the cross. You see, God's son and Israel failed to live according to God's will. But God's only beloved eternal son in Jesus came as a substitute to take what Israel and we rightly deserve. If we believe in Jesus, the good shepherd who laid down his life for us, in his faithfulness and his love towards us, we become part of a new Israel. We become God's beloved people. We become his church through whom restoration for all of creation truly begins. So whatever struggle you're facing, whatever crisis you find yourself in, whenever you come to those moments in life when something is lacking and you feel empty inside, maybe it's time that you cry out to God in desperation. Acknowledge your despair before him. Recognize your brokenness as your life feels like it's heading towards destruction. But turn. Turn to your good shepherd in faith. Turn to see that the good shepherd is also the one who your king is your king who can save you. And the one that you can abide and remain and find rest in. And when you do, you see how Jesus, the good shepherd, the vine, the son of man, God's king, can divinely restore your life for your good and for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for over these past few weeks we have looked at the Psalms and we see how Jesus is revealed as your true king. Lord, how the Psalms point us forward to Jesus, not just in what he did for us, but also in who he, who he has become. Lord, he always was your chosen king. And Father, now he reigns as the eternal king forevermore. Lord, help us to find rest and restoration in him today. Help us to turn to him in our brokenness and our despair when we feel like life has fallen apart around us. Help us to find security and hope in him. Help us to know him. Help us to trust him. 
and help us to cling closely to him. For he cares for us. He loves us dearly. And Lord, he lays down his life for us. Father, we thank you that Jesus has laid down his life for us at the cross. And our sins are paid for in full. So Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thankful for your faithfulness. And we thank you for your mercy and grace in Christ alone. Amen.